Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Theater actors must be nimble. Live performance can hold unexpected moments that the most seasoned professionals manage without skipping a beat. So it's not surprising that theaters are readily adapting to a virtual life now. Freddie Ashley is among Atlanta's most impressive theater professionals. He'll tell us about the Virtual Threshold New Play Festival at Actors Express, where he is the artistic director. First, a close-up encounter with a brilliant movie director. With a Hollywood career of 40 years, director Billy Wilder created 25 films, most of which are among the greatest movies of the 20th century. The Temple in Atlanta is offering a four-week Zoom seminar beginning today. It's called... Billy Wilder, Up Close, four films. Professor Matthew Bernstein is the chair of film and media studies at Emory University. He will lead the webinar along with film expert Bob Barr. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having us, Lois. Yes, thank you. Billy Wilder has been described as Hollywood's greatest realist, but he was also a great humanist. I thought about why Wilder now and wondered if it is that quality of his humanity that made you decide this was a good time to consider his film. Well, Lois, I think you've hit on exactly why we were so interested in talking about Wilder's work. He is uh, a great realist. He was a filmmaker, a storyteller, who could look at life without blinders, see the most unattractive aspects of human nature and morality, but at the same time, offer a vision of hope for change and improvement. And in many of his films, most of his films, you do see characters coming to understand themselves, the people around them, society, life in general. Sometimes they realize it too late for their own good, but there is that process. And a lot of people talked about how sometimes his endings were happier than they deserved to be, given all the squalor he had depicted for the first 90 minutes. Uh, but the fact that he kept returning to this idea that people can be better and rise above their basest instincts, uh, and to do so in such an entertaining and witty way, uh, is part of his enduring appeal. These uh, four films uh, that we're going to be talking about, Double Indemnity, uh, The Apartment, Some Like It Hot, uh, and Sunset Boulevard, are preserved in the... uh, National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. Uh, And so he was a master 
of the, the Hollywood film. And these four films we're going to be talking about have really uh, met the test of time. Yeah, before we get to those specific films, what types of movies did he create? Genre specific or all over the map? He he was very uh, versatile. Uh, he made World War Two film, a World War Two film, Five Graves to Cairo. He made uh, a great courtroom drama mystery film, Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, but when you when you come down to it, he really excelled at two kinds of films. And one is the romantic comedy uh, and also farce. And this is typified by one of the films we'll be talking about, uh, Some Like It Hot. Uh, but he also excelled at um, a kind of a you know film noir. I mean, his film Double Indemnity from 1944 with Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray and Edward G. Robinson is a kind of prototype of the hard-boiled murder mystery kind of film in which a man conspires with a married woman to kill her husband for the insurance benefits. So it's, it's an unusual combination to be so adept at romantic comedy uh, and particularly comedy of disguise uh, and then also film noir. Uh, and then there were some other films of just hard-bitten realism. And among these, I would count The Lost Weekend about an alcoholic's uh, difficult uh, recovery over a weekend and a film that we're not showing, but if we had more time, we would, Ace in the Hole about a ruthless newspaper journalist who uh, exploits an unfortunate accident, a life-threatening accident to build up his own reputation. Uh, Billy Wilder uh, was a man who uh, idolized uh, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, an immigre German director uh, who had an enormous impact on films during the 1930s. And so many of uh, Billy Wilder's films had what film critics have called the Lubitsch touch. And the Lubitsch touch uh, had a, a certain wit, a charm, a elegance, uh, a kind of European uh, approach to filmmaking that I think has largely disappeared uh, today. But uh, he loved Lubitsch and in his office during his entire career, he had a sign in eight inch high letters, uh, which posed the question, how would Lubitsch do it? Yeah, and what he loved about Lubitsch was uh, Lubitsch's ability to convey information to the audience by suggestion indirectly. So that, for example, the script he wrote for Lubitsch in Ninochka um, is about Greta Garbo as this very strict uh, Russian communist who's come to Paris uh, to uh, retrieve some of her comrades who have not been doing the proper work but have been seduced by capitalism. And the film is about how Ninochka, the Garbo character, is seduced by, by capitalism. And there are many ways to indicate that, but one is a hat in a, in a store window outside the hotel. And the first time she walks by it, she just tuss tuffs at it and, you know, what a civilization that would, you know, expend so much energy on a hat that costs so much. Uh, the second time she walks by, you know, she looks at it a little more admiringly. Uh, and then in a final scene, she's in her hotel room, a third scene, um, and she's putting the hat on. So this idea of um, expressing her changing attitudes, not through dialogue, oh, I'm coming to love capitalism, but doing it through the object and letting the audience complete the equation. That is what most people think of when they're referring to as the Lubitsch touch. And Wilder took that over and used that technique as much as possible. It was a very special sensibility. And Bob, you mentioned the emigre influence Wilder was Austrian-born, left Berlin, where he had been working in film after the Nazis took power. How much did his Jewish, as well as his emigre identity, inform his Hollywood career? Well, it was, uh, I think, a very important part of his uh, sensibility, a very important part of how he approached the world. He had a a long-standing 
a relationship with another writer in Hollywood. They uh, did Sunset Boulevard together and a number of other uh, films uh, by the name of Charles Brackett. And uh, Charles Brackett was uh, a Harvard man. He had been a columnist uh, at New York Magazine in the 1920s. He knew all the right people and he was uh, kind of a well-bred uh, New England gentleman. Uh, but the one thing that he didn't have in this relationship was uh, Billy Wilder's pizzazz. And it was that pizzazz, that uh, Central European sensibility, uh, which uh, spiced uh, these uh, screenplays that they created together. I think Billy Wilder was always the outsider. He was always the outsider uh, as a, a Jewish writer uh, who for all of his talents and for all of his accomplishments uh, was never uh, fully accepted or never felt like he was fully accepted. Uh, he, I think, was always striving for uh, that role that his uh, German upbringing had prepared him for. And yet not trying to pass or or cover up or deny anything. I, I was struck by the fact that watching Double Indemnity, there's a scene where Fred McMurray's character, Walter Neff, says he's going to call Lou Schwartz. And then later, um, in the apartment, which is the last film in your series, there's a Jewish neighbor, um, the Yiddishisms, mid-century Hollywood, mid-century entertainment. We heard mostly Anglo-Saxon names. This was white Anglo-Saxon entertainment's heyday, and yet he included these elements in his work. Do you think he got any pushback? Well, he probably did, uh, but he was uh, too influential. He had too much power in Hollywood to get too much pushback. Uh, in Double Indemnity, for example, he cast Edward G. Robinson in an important role. And Edward G. Robinson was born Emmanuel Goldenberg, the G in his name was to remind him that he had been born Emanuel Goldenberg in Europe. And he began his early career in the Yiddish theater. And his performance in uh, Double Indemnity uh, lends an ethnic touch to his uh, characterization. He is the outsider, in a sense, uh, the personification of uh, Wilder's creative role that propels uh, this drama, gives it such a force, and provides uh, much of the drive for a, a film that otherwise would have unwound much more uh, slowly. So uh, whether people liked uh, Wilder's casting or not, whether they liked his stories or not, he had a force of character that uh, made it difficult to disagree with Billy Wilder. I loved In Double Indemnity, which is extraordinary on every level and has outstanding actors. I feel like Robinson steals the show. If there is one scenery-chomping, uh, memorable role, it is his. But would you talk about why you decided to start your film seminar with Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is the film that put him on the map, and it was such a departure from anything that he had done earlier. So uh, that's really the place to begin. And the film is so influential. I mean, uh, the film has been redone. Parts of it have been reiterated. I mean, to check one example, Lawrence Kasdan's great 1981 neo-noir, Body Heat, is basically a total remake of Double Indemnity. And the idea of the formulation of the femme fatale, this doesn't start with Wilder, but he crystallizes it. The use of voiceover narration, uh, the use of flashback, creating a sense of in, in inevitable fate. 
uh, that this venture of theirs to try to earn more money through murder is bound to fail and the reasons why. So, I mean, it was a very logical starting point. It's also one of his most visually striking. Wilder's a very unobtrusive director visually. He doesn't believe in having the camera and the lighting get in the way, but in this film and Sunset Boulevard, these are two of his most visually striking uh, expressionist uh, bits of directing. So uh, as far as our clip, <clears throat> I'll just set it up that this comes early in the film. Again, it's all framed by a flashback of Frederick Murray confessing to the Edward G. Robinson character what he's been up to. Um, and this is a scene of the first encounter between Frederick Murray's character, Walter Neff, the insurance salesman, and Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson, uh, the woman who seduces him. You're a smart insurance man, aren't you, Mr. Neff? Well, I've been at it 11 years. Doing pretty well? well it's a living. You handle just automobile insurance or all kinds? All kinds. Fire, earthquake, theft, public liability, group insurance, industrial stuff, and so on, right down the line. Accident insurance? Accident insurance? Sure, Mr. Dietrichson. Wish you'd tell me what's engraved on that anklet. Just my name. As for instance? Phyllis. Phyllis, huh? I think I like that. But you're not sure. I'd have to drive it around the block a couple of times. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. It's a great scene for any number of reasons, but particularly um, the witty dialogue that they create. Wilder, as, uh, as an emigre, one of, he had many fascinations with America. Uh, he loved baseball. He loved American culture. He grew up loving it. Uh, but he always had a fascination with language and the way you can play with language. And again, this is where the Lubitsch influence comes in a bit. Uh, as you see this flirtatious exchange between Neff and Phyllis, you'll get a sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, that finesse with language shows a real command of the English language. There is a line I just love. Walter Neff, Fred McMurray's character says, how could I know murder could smell like honeysuckle? Yes, it's marvelous. And also just, you know, the use of the metaphor of speeding and speeding ticket and the officer, and he's trying to pick up Phyllis a little too quickly. Uh, although, although we later learned Phyllis is a pro at accepting these kinds of offers. But, uh, you know, there's this uh, pretension of uh, decorum. This is going too fast for me. And the way they kind of, the badinage in which they, they kind of playfully use language is a marker of how well they go together, at least for a period of time. Billy Wilder uh, was a, a director who always uh, believed that movies were authored. That in a sense, uh, the screenplay, the words that a screenwriter wrote were really the basis for great movies. I, I think it's uh, probably a lesson that can't be learned well enough, uh, particularly in our present era where so much film entertainment depends on uh, technological razzle-dazzle, uh, star power, uh, sound effects, all, all that sort of thing. He really believed that the words that were spoken and the action that was plotted was the most important part of the film. And in these four films, they are. Wilder was a writer-director. Very few people in Hollywood in the 40s could be a writer-director. I mean, Orson Welles was Citizen Kane. Uh, Charlie Chaplin, of course, was a writer-director performer, uh, but kind of marginal uh, by this time. And for a writer under contract to be able to negotiate to gain control of the direction of his film was really quite an achievement. And Wilder, to, to Bob's point, became a director to protect his scripts. Double Indemnity is where he takes his big chance and succeeds. Before we leave Double Indemnity, again, considering the last film, 
you will discuss in this series, the apartment, and beginning with double indemnity, one can't help but wonder, what was Billy Wilder's fascination with insurance companies? (laughs) The protagonists in both of those films are insurance men. I mean, I realize it's sort of... um, a corporate satire writ large, but did he have any personal experience with insurance companies? Uh, It's great that you noticed this uh, connection, uh, Lois. I mean, not only are they both set in insurance companies, and the insurance company office in Double Indemnity has the same layout as the huge insurance office layout in the apartment. It's not as expansive, but it's the same lineup of desks, very impersonally. And they even have the same, it's the same company. Walter Neff works for Pacific All Risk. C.C. Baxter works uh, for Pacific All Risk. So he he definitely has this feeling about it. This is his way of talking about capitalism. Uh, A lot of his films are about people who are caught up in machinery that they think they can control but they really can't. And it's obvious with C.C. Baxter that he's in the machinery of the corporation lending out his apartment so upper executives who might promote him can use them for sexual trysts. But there's the same way in which Walter Neff is also in, involved in a, a kind of imprecated into this um, impersonal system of capitalism, which is also kind of embodied in the metaphor that uh, of the language that all the characters use in Double Indemnity, which is we are doing this straight down the line. We've committed to committing this murder, scamming the insurance company. We're going straight down the line and where straight down the line leads is actually to death. And that's part of his critique of what a depersonalized capitalist society can do to the individual who tries to get ahead within it. And it also has to do with this issue of risk-taking. Who takes risks? And, and who doesn't? And the idea that one can try to have insurance to avoid all kinds of risks is anathema to Wilder's sensibility. You have to go out there. You have to, you have to do things. Even if his characters are doing things that are very wrong, uh, you have to be bold and assertive, uh, even if it doesn't turn out well. This film, Double Indemnity, is a heart-stopping uh, film. Uh, It's impossible to watch this film and do anything else. People who came to the theater in 1944 with their Coca-Cola and their popcorn sat down to watch this film and never drank the Coca-Cola, never ate the popcorn. It's one of those films that pulls you along from beginning to end. It is masterful entertainment. Film expert Bob Barr and Professor Matthew Bernstein, Chair of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We'll return to our conversation about filmmaker Billy Wilder after a quick break. This is WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my discussion with Bob Barr and Professor Matthew Bernstein, Chair of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. We're talking about films of Billy Wilder. 
Sunset Boulevard with so many iconic lines and moments. Matthew, tell us about the clip that we'll we'll hear from this movie. Sunset Boulevard is um, Wilder's great statement about um, illusion and reality and how difficult it is to distinguish between them as embodied uh, in the flamboyant figure of Norma Desmond, so memorably played by silent screen star and radio and TV presence, Gloria Swanson. Um, so she believes she's in the con uh, con working on a script for her great comeback into sound films. Um, and she um, is really living in a fantasy land uh, that gets disturbed. So while it's obvious that Norma is living in a world of delusion, uh, Joe Gillis, the screenwriter who blunders into her house, uh, escaping a mortgage collectors, is also under illusions. The illusion that he can use Norma to forward his screenwriting career, lie low, uh, and then emerge triumphant. So it's a, a great study in power dynamics between two people who have illusions of varying degrees of severity. The scene, the clip that we, you have is um, uh, taken from their very first encounter where he's shown into Norma Desmond's abandoned mansion on Sunset Boulevard for reasons I won't go into, but it's a misunderstanding. And as he's going to leave, um, he realizes that he's seen her before. And this leads to one of Norma's um, immortal lines about uh, when he says you used to be big, you used to be in pictures, you used to be big. Uh, and they have this this kind of exchange back and forth. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh -huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead, they're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. Uh, so again, a demonstration of the great, great wit uh, and insight with which um, Wilder and uh, his co-writer, Charlie Brackett, the mainstream American co-writer, uh, for, formulate their, their dialogue. And uh, again, you pointed out that along with Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard uh, is one of those expressionist influence films of Wilder. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's also this idea of claustrophobia. Um, Wilder is very interested in the ways that people get entrapped, uh, but also the ways they entrap themselves. And so the interior of Norma Desmond's mansion is just full of bric-a-brac photos, uh, an ancient organ. Um, it's just every, it's one of those houses where like every five inches is totally occupied by something. And when in the case of the photographs, it's photographs of Norma when she was a younger woman. And the film makes incredible use of um, Gloria Swanson's own film career. In fact, they actually screen a film from her career in the late 20s, financed by Joe Kennedy, who was one of her lovers at the time, um, directed by the great Eric von Stroheim, uh, a silent film director who was also a great influence on Wilder's interest in uh, depicting absolute realism, no matter how sort it is. And anyway, von Stroheim plays Norma's butler. So there's this mix of Hollywood history and fantasy that's going on at a meta level within the film that makes it incredibly rich. And then, of course, you have her visit to see Cecil B. DeMille in, at the Paramount studio. He's working on Samson and Delilah at the time. Uh, but DeMille is the man who made Gloria Swanson a, a star in uh, one of his feature films in 1919. This film came out in uh, 1950. And uh, the line that she says, I'm big, it's the pictures that got small, uh, might've been talking about the motion picture industry at that time, but really uh, it referred in another way uh, to what was happening elsewhere in American entertainment. 
television in 1950 was just starting to take hold. And it would take about 10 years for uh, television to dominate American entertainment. And in a sense, this film, Sunset Boulevard, is uh, about how Hollywood is changing and how Hollywood is meeting uh, the challenges in a sense of uh, a new era. And of course, uh, does it brilliantly through the eyes of these two characters, uh, Norman Desmond and Joe Gillis. Yeah, there's another scene in the film that's just hilarious where Joe is trying to uh, pitch a script, uh, a baseball script, uh, and he goes into a producer he's worked with and they kind of brainstorm and kick it around. And at the end of the meeting, the producer wants to make it a musical with Betty Hutton. So uh, it's a satire on how Hollywood works. Classical Hollywood's greatest era was the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. But by the end of the 40s, because of television, because of suburbanization, uh, attendance was declining. You have the threat of television. Um, so it's really almost a snapshot, although the film is not actively diagnosing the state of the industry. Uh, in, a, in a statistical way, it is in an emotional way and in an atmospheric way. Um, and it's just incredible mix of absurd uh, surrealism as well as real emotional drama because while Norma Desmond is a wild character, uh, the film has great sympathy for her. There's a kind of grandeur in her delusions that um, I think the film encourages us to admire in spite of her insanity. And that's the richness of a Wilder film, right? It's never all good, all bad. It's this layering of perspectives. It's this compassion for characters that seem to be behaving very badly. That is one of the reasons why his films are so rich. Some Like It Hot is a marvelous example of the farce. I think there must be people who have seen images of Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis in drag, who've never seen the film. Where do we begin with Some Like It Hot? Well, Wilder, his comedies excel at um, situations involving the comedy of disguise. And all of um, Wilder's best comedies, and including his dramas, involve people pretending to be someone else. And the idea of disguise, uh, the comedy of disguise is magnificent because on the one hand, the disguise allows the character to realize new things about themselves. In the clip you have, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis have been forced by circumstances to dress as female musicians to get away from the gangsters in Chicago. And they're just talking about how hard it is to walk in high heels, how hard it is to wear a dress. And their, their exchanges here, once again, are just hilarious. Lemon perfecting his neurotic comic persona, uh, Tony Curtis being the more smooth, cool guy. Not only he's a more seductive male, he's a more feminine, feminine um, woman in disguise. What's the matter now? How do they walk in these things, huh? How do they keep their balance? It must be the way the weight is distributed now. Come on. It is so drafty. They must be catching cold all the time, huh? Will you quit stalling? We're going to miss the train. I feel naked. I feel like everybody's staring at me. With those legs, are you crazy now? Come on. It's no use. We're not going to get away with it, Joe. My name is Josephine, and this was your idea in the first place. They both have to fight off male um, suitors in the course of the film. Um, but I think it's 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 a film that that toys with I you know obviously transvestism, uh, homosexuality um, <clears throat> in very kind of muted ways. They're always making sure we know that Lemon and, and Curtis are definite heterosexual males, uh, but it's Wilder's ability to play with these notions of identity that are liberating, not just for the characters, but for those of us 
who are watching. And quite frankly, I will say, I think this is the greatest American comedy ever made. It's a bit dated. Uh, there's some sexism in the humor, but even listening to this clip where they argue about whether to go forward or not with their scheme to get on this train with women musicians, as Jack Lemmon is saying, we can't do this, we can't do this, along comes a newspaper boy with a headline about the gangland massacre that they have witnessed and must escape. And uh, okay, we, we've got to get on the train. It's, so it's a marvel of narrative causality and construction. It's a marvel of um, characterization. Marilyn Monroe has never appeared to better advantage in any Hollywood film, because also because Wilder is an expert at using stars and the star images that are built up over time. And so, yes, it's Marilyn Monroe, the quintessential Monroe character, uh, the incredibly uh, erotic, sensual, sexy woman who yet has a kind of innocence about her effect on men, um, but also cast in a very sympathetic light because she is unsuccessful in romance over and over again. This film, as the critic Stanley Kaufman once says, comes as close to perfection as any film. This film also is the beginning of uh, a long relationship that Wilder had with a film writer by the name of I.A.L. Diamond, uh, who was born like Wilder in Europe and uh, who was his collaborator on a dozen films uh, that uh, Wilder made in the latter part of his career. And uh, kind of interesting that I.A.L. Diamond was once asked, uh, what do those letters mean? And uh, he, uh, who had once been uh, a champion mathematics scholar, said that uh, it stood for Interscholastic Algebra League. Oh my. <laughs> So International Algebra League uh, Diamond and Billy Wilder created, as Matthew has said, uh, one of the greatest film comedies ever put uh, on film in this country. Hmm. Now, the seminar will conclude with the apartment, which is a masterpiece. Watching it again, was a marvelous experience. And Jack Lemon is brilliant. And he's brilliantly matched with the very young Shirley MacLaine. It seems so sad as the film progresses. Yet the characters learn a great deal. Is this one of those films you were referring to where Wilder may have been uh, accused of placing a happy ending that didn't belong because it didn't feel that way to me. You know, so often when you look at the endings of Wilder films, they're not as happy as they seem. I mean, the ending of um, Some Like It Hot is, it's a bit indefinite. There are still a lot of questions to be answered after that film is over. Uh, especially about Osgood and uh, the Jack Lemmon character. But, um, and, and the same thing with the apartment. I mean, they're together, but what does that mean? Uh, what is the relationship that they're going to have? And so really the apartment, although it's often regarded as a comedy, is really a dramedy. And Wilder himself said, I never thought of this film as a comedy. Um, it's a very moral melodrama. Uh, a dissection of white collar life in America. A uh, huge influence on Mad Men, by the way. The creator of Mad Men acknowledges the apartment uh, because the Mad Men is uh, around this time, right? It's the 1960s. Huge influence on that very popular and successful series. So coming back to the Jewishness in the film, the apartment is the most ostensibly Jewish film in uh, Wilder's catalog in the person of the next door neighbor doctor and his wife who feeds Shirley MacLaine chicken soup when she's ill, so on and so forth. But the big line of dialogue from the doctor to Baxter is be a mensch. 
And so that exhortation, the film is about C.C. Baxter learning that his ambitious climb and to do anything possible to get to the executive level of the corporation, the insurance company, have his own key to the washroom and so forth, is really not what he wants in, in life. And so, and it's, but it's done so humorously and there are many funny gags throughout the film, very funny moments, but it's a very serious film. And um, also just full of great inventiveness. I mean, uh, uh, Jack Lemmon's cooking dinner for Shirley MacLaine, but he's using a tennis racket <laughs> as a trainer for the pasta. Um, the scene, uh, the clip we've sent is uh, of the Christmas party at the insurance company office. And that's just got some great dialogue between the two characters. Well, as a matter of fact, I was rather hurt that night you stood me up. I don't blame you. It was unforgivable. I forgive you. Well, you shouldn't. You couldn't help yourself. I mean, when you're having a drink with one man, you can't suddenly walk out on him because you're having another date with another man. You did the only decent thing. I wouldn't be too sure. Just because I wear a uniform, that doesn't make me a girl scout. Miss Kubelik, one doesn't get to be a second administrative assistant around here unless he's a pretty good judge of character. And as far as I'm concerned, your tops, I mean, decency-wise and otherwise-wise. <laughs> Cheers. Uh, that's quite wonderful. And then there's this amazing scene later in the Christmas party. Wilder is always interested in characters and the hierarchy of knowledge between them. What do they know? When do they know it? What do they learn? And so in Some Like It Hot, again, with the comedy of disguise, who knows who's in disguise? Who knows when they're going to be unmasked and what's going to happen? Um, Tony Curtis is able to seduce Marilyn Monroe because he overhears her or elicits from her a description of the exact kind of man she wants to marry. And then he impersonates that kind of man. And of course it, it anticipates uh, by decades, the concern that uh, is so much a part of American life today uh, about how uh, corporate life uh, has some uh, perhaps uh, sins it needs to correct. The Me Too movement, uh, the Harvey Weinstein affair, uh, Ronan Farrell's recent book uh, about that, and all of uh, this concern about uh, proper behavior in the workplace is anticipated in this film of, believe it or not, 1960. And so, in a sense, uh, this film kind of bookends uh, what we're talking about here in our series from 1944 to 1960, a time of a considerable change uh, in America, uh, but in a sense, a, a summation of where America is in mid-century and how America in mid-century has influenced our life today. This has been so enjoyable, just fascinating insight into the films of Billy Wilder and America in the span of those years. Matthew Bernstein, Bob Barr, thank you very much. Thank you, Lois, for having us. Yes, thank you. Bob Barr and Professor Matthew Bernstein, Chair of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. They're leading a Zoom seminar for the next few weeks on films of Billy Wilder, offered by the Temple in Atlanta. There will be more information on our website at wabe.org. You're listening to City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Actors Express is among America's leading champions of contemporary playwriting. In that spirit, for the past five years, they have featured the Threshold New Play Festival. Freddie Ashley is the artistic director of Actors Express and joins us now via Zoom. Freddie, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking with you. Love being with you. Now, the Threshold New Play Festival began in 2015. What 
has it been like for Actors Express transitioning to the digital format this year? Well, it's been certainly challenging and interesting as we've been looking for ways to engage with audiences in a new way while we're all um, isolated at home. We wanted to do this festival as a way of continuing to connect with our audiences to continue to work with playwrights we love uh, and uh, to just keep the work happening. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be back together hopefully very soon, but in the meantime, the work needs to continue. Mm. Was there an overarching theme for this year's Threshold? You know, there wasn't. We have a, a sort of focus on local writers uh, anyway with the Threshold Festival. And what we did was we put out a flash call for playwrights to submit their work uh, and noted that we would have a preference for Atlanta-based writers, but that anyone was allowed to um, submit. And so we got many dozens of submissions from around the country, and we chose three initially just based on you know, the quality of the work and what we thought were, were compelling pieces of writing. And so there wasn't really an overarching guiding thematic imperative, but we did add a new reading to the lineup that will happen the 8th of June. That is a play that I think speaks more to the current moment that we're in. We felt that it would be important to use the platform that we have and to be in conversation with our audiences about the, the, the time we find ourselves in. Oh, that's so exciting to hear that there's an addition to something instead of a subtraction because of constraints this year. What is the title of Monday's program? It's a play called Woke, and it's by an Atlanta playwright named Avery Sharp. We actually did a reading of it back in 2018, and it was subsequently produced by the Essential Theater here in Atlanta. And it is about two lifelong best friends, uh, one uh, white and one black. And they're in their summer before going off to college. And they find themselves at a turning point when they come sort of crashing headlong into some sort of pressing details about America's racial divide. And it couldn't be timelier. Um, and it's a really, really, really good play. And we thought, well, how better to serve this moment and our mission of working with local writers than to present a reading of this one. Perfectly timed. This Sunday's play was written by Edith Franey, and it's titled, This is About You. Yes. What can you tell us about that? Well, Edith's play is actually, we're going to be moving that to Sunday the 28th of June, so that we uh, don't have too much going on with rehearsals this weekend. And Edith was really excited to to move her read to make way for Woke to happen. She was really on board with it. And it is a, a really interesting play that has never been produced. And it's about a woman who works at a sort of swim with the dolphins kind of park. And uh, she's navigating a relationship with her platonic male roommate, but there might be something else going on there. And she also has a very intense relationship with a particular dolphin. So it is a play that has a fair amount of whimsy and magic in it, but it's also serious and very interesting. Edith is a playwright who has a, a singular voice, in my opinion. She lived here in Atlanta for three years doing a playwriting fellowship at Emory University. And we became very close and we've worked on some other projects together. She's out in LA now, but I think she still considers Atlanta one of her artistic homes. Freddie, does an actor play the dolphin? No, an actor does not play the dolphin, at least in this current draft of the play. <laughs> okay. And I'm not sure how we would accomplish that in a reading. <laughs> Well, you know, they are very smart creatures. Very much so. We could probably learn a lot from them. Freddie, our conversation in March with you, Susan Booth, and Paul Conroy was the very first I conducted remotely when the nation was shutting down for shelter in place. How is Actors Express holding up? 
You know, we're doing very well. We've had some pretty successful fundraising and we are also really locked into um, constant planning. I've done more scenario planning in the last couple of months than I ever thought was possible. And I'm a sort of planning wonk. I love strategic planning. I love planning. Even I have sometimes felt saturated with it during this moment, but you know, it really forces us to consider what's important, what are our commitments to the community, and that's been top of mind for all of us on staff, and you know, we're navigating it well. We're all very eager to get back to it in person. That's what we're here for, and that's the core of what we do, um, but we know that we'll only be able to do that when it's safe to do so, and We've got a lot of plans and collaborations and conversations with colleagues and other organizations to make sure that when we do decide to come back, once it's legal to do so, and then once it's safe to do so, that we're going to be doing everything in the right way to keep our audiences and artists safe and healthy. Freddie Ashley is the artistic director of Actors Express. The next virtual threshold reading is on Monday, that's June 8th, at 7.30 p.m. The play is Woke by Avery Sharp. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. to hear how you can host your own virtual paint party. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. And please do listen to our new City Lights podcast wherever you subscribe. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE at Latta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.